0: Did you know that every year, property crimes like burglaries and package thefts spike over the holiday season? That's why there is no better time than now to invest in Safe. This week, SimpliSafe are giving Red Collar listeners 40% off their award-winning home security system. We love Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. This offer ends soon. Take 40% off at simplysafecom slash redcollar today. Go to SimplySafe.com slash redcollar. It was around 2.30 p.m. on Thursday, July 29th, 1999, when Mark Barton, a 44-year-old chemist turned day trader, strolled into Momentum Securities Incorporated in the posh Buckhead neighborhood of Atlanta. Mark had a nickname among the other traders. They called him The Rocket. He was known as being extremely aggressive in his trades and for his volatile highs and lows. On that day, witnesses in the office remembered that their six-foot-four, 205-pound jovial colleague wearing a red polo shirt and khaki shorts was smiling. But Mark had been on a losing streak and no one knew how bad it was. They projected success. Mark was in the hole for around half a million dollars, so much money that he'd been asked to stop trading at Momentum. In fact, he had lost $20,000 in a single day two days earlier. He gave the company a check for $50,000 that he would need to continue trading, but it bounced. So Mark had an appointment with management to clear everything up. He chatted with the staff until Brad, the manager, came back from running an errand. Then, after discussing the Dow's 200-point drop and exchanging some friendly banner, witnesses say he uttered the fateful line, I hope I'm not upsetting your trading day. Then he pulled out two handguns, a 45 caliber and a Glock 9mm, and opened fire. He shot Brad three times at point-blank range, and he walked through the office, methodically executing people as they tried to hide under desks. He killed four people at Momentum, Then he reloaded and walked across the street to another office on Piedmont, where he had also recently traded, the Alltech Investment Group. By the end of the day, 12 people were dead, 13 were wounded, a city was terrified, and the gunman was still out there. For the people of Atlanta, the horror was just beginning. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. In July 1999, Atlanta residents were glued to their TV sets, watching trader Mark Barton's office massacre unfolding live in Buckhead. Rumors were flying about a second gunman and a sniper on a roof. A bomb. It felt like an adult version of the Columbine high school shootings, which had stunned the nation in Colorado just three months earlier. Just a few minutes after her husband started shooting in Buckhead, police were at the Barton home in Stockbridge performing a welfare check. A co-worker of Mark's second wife, Leanne Barton, had called the authorities after Leanne failed to show up for work. They found her body stuffed inside a bedroom closet. Police also found Mark's children from his first marriage, 12-year-old Matthew and 8-year-old Michelle, known as Shelley. Investigators determined that Mark had killed them with a hammer and tucked them into their beds. The children had been carefully covered, with only their faces exposed, and their favorite toys were beside them. What could have driven a seemingly normal family man to snap like that? As police and federal agents scrambled to find Mark and to make sense of the gruesome clues he left behind, the world of day trading became a hot topic. In 1999, day trading was at its height. It's a high-risk, high-reward, and very volatile world. And the day traders, who come from all walks of life, kind of operate in an environment that was like the Wild West. At its most basic, Day trading involves obsessively tracking stock market changes. Trading days can play out like a long roller coaster ride, and emotions can run high. In 1999, according to the New York Times, around 5 million people traded every day. Really, three things helped fuel the rise of day trading, kind of like a perfect storm. First, the Securities and Exchange Commission introduced the small order entry system. During the stock market crash of 1987, when firms were buying and selling NASDAQ securities and they wanted to avoid small traders— they just stopped answering their phones. After they changed the rule, they basically gave people who had orders of 1,000 shares or less a priority over the larger orders. And the second factor in the rise of day trading was the dot-com boom and the crazy rise of Internet stocks. Finally, there was high-speed Internet. Now, some traders, both then and now, work on their computers at home. But in 1999, Internet speeds at home were much slower than they are now. And in a business where prices can plunge in seconds, this was a big deal— So a lot of traders joined firms like Altec and Momentum. They would attend a day training at some seminar and put up some of their own money, normally at least $50,000, to open a trading account. Then they were given a login and trained on the company's system. Now, critics said that day trading was basically a form of legalized gambling. But the day traders believed they were Davids battling the Goliaths of Goldman Sachs and the other big financial firms, getting their piece of the American dream. Mark Barton had had a job as a chemist and reportedly earned around $85,000 a year, but he had given it up to day trade full-time. According to the Washington Post, Mark claimed a net worth of $750,000 and put up $87,500 of his own money in order to start trading. On July 9th, he activated his account at Momentum Securities, where he shared an open plan office with around 25 other regular traders. A man named Reed Herder, who sat in a desk with Mark, Told Newsweek that Mark was one of the nicest guys you ever met. Colleagues remembered Mark as being a friendly, outgoing, devoted family man who skipped company happy hours in favor of church or Cub Scouts with his kids. Brent, Mark's former boss at Alltech, was interviewed for the investigation discovery show Who the Bleep in an episode titled, appropriately, Nightmare on Piedmont Street. He was just 25 the first day that Mark came into his office, eager to start trading. Brent said that Mark referred to himself as a whale, meaning that he traded blocks of 3,000 shares at a time. And Mark also said that he had a lot of experience and would not need any training. Plus, he seemed to have plenty of money. Brent said that at first, Mark did make some successful moves. He once netted $106,000 in a single trade. But he started taking bigger and bigger risks, and soon the tide turned. Mark was down $11,000. Brent told him he would have to make up the loss, which Mark did, and funded his account with another $50,000 in order to come back and start trading again. But within a couple of months, Mark was in the hole again, this time for around $30,000. And again, Brent asked Mark to leave Alltech. Brent said that Mark understood, and the men ended their exchange with a friendly handshake and a promise by Mark that he would be back to trade again someday. A few weeks later, Mark was trading with Momentum Securities, After the bloodbath at Momentum, Mark headed across the street to his old office at Alltech. When Mark came in that day, Brent, having no idea of the body count down the street, remembered that Mark seemed to have been in a good mood. He said, come here, come here, you're really gonna love this. He thought that Mark had brought money with him and was about to announce his intention to start trading again. They left the conference room and went into Brent's office. That's when Brent said the happy-go-lucky facade disappeared and Mark pulled out his two handguns. He shot Brent point blank, once in the chest and once in the arm. Mark then turned and shot Brent's partner, and then his assistant, and made his way around the floor, methodically firing at office workers who were trying to crawl under their desks. Brent was bleeding out and fading fast, so he made a decision to hit Mark as hard as he could and make a run for it. Brent staggered into the hallway. Mark followed him, still shooting. He shot him five times in all. Smearing blood on the walls, Brent made his way to the service elevator and started pushing the up button. He made it to the third floor, where employees called police. In the chaos, Mark walked out of Alltech, got into his green Ford Airstar minivan, and escaped. The hunt for Mark Barton was on. The holidays are coming up, which means that we're leaving home and traveling more often, and that we're also sending a lot of gifts. But it's also the time of year when property crimes like burglaries and package theft spike. That's why there is no better time than now to invest in Safe. This week, Safe are giving red-collar listeners 40% off their award-winning home security system. We love SimpliSafe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. It was even named Best Home Security Systems of 2021 by U.S. News and World Report. You can easily customize a system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations from SimpliSafe. These are SimpliSafe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. There are no long-term contracts or commitments. It's a really easy way to start feeling a bit more peace of mind. This offer ends soon. Take 40% off at simplysafe.com/slash redcollar today. Go to simplysafe.com slash redcollar. Mark Barton was born on April 2nd, 1955, in Stockbridge, Georgia. He grew up an Army brat. His dad was in the Air Force, and his mom was a secretary for the Lutheran Church. Friends told reporters that the relationship between Mark and his father was difficult and described his dad as very strict. When Mark was 14, he broke into a drugstore and got caught. At Sumter High School in South Carolina, former classmates remembered him as being socially awkward, amazing at chemistry, and a complete loner. At 16, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he reportedly started experimenting with drugs, mainly hallucinogens. A former classmate of Mark's told the AJC that Mark ended up overdosing and in the hospital after taking too many morning glory seeds. Morning glory seeds are weaker than LSD, but they still produce hallucinogenic effects. However, they can also cause severe nausea. And if taken with any kind of antidepressant, they can produce terrible reactions. Now, I have no idea what kind of prescriptions, if any, Mark was taking as a teen, But there are a lot of stories online of teens overdosing on the seeds, including one of a teenager in Boston who ended up in the hospital after buying a bag of them at Home Depot. And if you use chemicals to cause a reaction in the seeds to try to get a better high, like budding chemist Mark's friend said he did, the reaction can be toxic. Mark survived the bad trip, but his friend said he was never the same. After that, Mark cut all his hair off and started carrying a Bible around wherever he went. Despite having at least one psychotic episode and a worsening drug habit, he got into Clemson University. The next year, he transferred to the University of South Carolina. By then, he had reportedly graduated to using and selling methamphetamines. Still, he managed to graduate with a degree in chemistry and relocated to Atlanta, where he got a job in a hotel. That's where he met his first wife, Deborah Spivey. The couple married and moved to Texarkana, Arkansas. They had two children, Matthew and Michelle. On the surface, Mark's demons seemed to be behind him. His job trajectory with TLC Manufacturing was going well. He was promoted and eventually became president of the company. But former co-workers described him as controlling and paranoid, both at work and with his wife. He tried to maintain absolute control over where she went and who she associated with. And in front of acquaintances, he reportedly called her stupid, even when she had a miscarriage. He also seemed to have a serious persecution complex. If he believed that anyone was out to get him for any reason, he would vow to get revenge. Barton was fired by TLC in September 1990. A week later, he broke into the company's offices. He downloaded proprietary chemical formulas and client lists, stole folders with crucial information, and wiped the computers clean of data. Barton was charged with felony burglary. It's not clear exactly what happened, But reading between the lines of news reports, it seems like the company just wanted the matter to go away. So they settled with Mark, and the criminal charges were dropped. Mark and Deborah moved to Georgia, where he started a new job. They found a five-bedroom family home for their two kids and two cats. But Deborah was getting suspicious. Her husband seemed to be spending more and more time away from home. And it turned out that Mark was having an affair with Leanne Vandiver, a 21-year-old receptionist at the company where Mark worked as a sales rep. Despite the age difference, and the fact that Leanne was already married to a man named David Lang, Mark fell head over heels. In a deposition taken years later, Mark stated that Deborah got suspicious when he started going to a tanning bed on a regular basis. In June 1993, Mark Barton promised Leanne that he would be free to marry her by October. And he was able to keep that promise. Because just a few weeks later, over Labor Day weekend, Deborah and her 59-year-old mother, Eloise, went on a camping trip to Lake Weiss in Alabama. Their bodies were found two days later. When detectives opened the camper, they found the interior covered in blood. Investigators determined that the two women were hacked with a large, machete-style blade. Both victims' causes of death were determined to be blunt force trauma. And the killer had made some attempts to clean up the crime scene. The women's valuables were mostly untouched, and Eloise's red Thunderbird was still parked next to the camper. Police theorized that robbery had not been the real motive. This level of overkill meant that these murders were very personal. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, law enforcement labeled Mark the only suspect in his late wife and mother-in-law's deaths. Bill Spivey, Mark's former father-in-law, said that he had considered Mark the perfect son-in-law. But after the bodies were found, He would spend the next several years of his life trying to warn people about Mark Barton. Tragically, no one seemed to be listening. Mark claimed that he was innocent. He insisted that he had an alibi. He said he had been at home watching the kids when the murders occurred. David Yang, Leanne's ex-husband, has said that he has his own theory about what went down. He thinks that Leanne was babysitting for Mark that night. Police had doubts that Mark was with the kids, but the bottom line is they were not able to prove that he wasn't there There were no witnesses, no fingerprints, and no other forensic evidence. They did spray luminol in Mark's torus and found what they believed to be spots of blood in the car. But since they did not have enough evidence to arrest Mark, or apparently to get a search warrant, their hands were tied. All they could do was send the car home with Mark and ask him not to get it cleaned. Later, Mark accidentally spilled a soft drink on the blood spots, which damaged the DNA so much that further testing was impossible. Through it all, Mark kept his cool. He refused to cooperate with police, refused to take a lie detector test, and seemed to be toying with them. He knew that they did not have enough evidence to arrest him. Investigators could also point to a clear motive, money. Mark had taken out a life insurance policy on his wife for $600,000 just days before she was found dead. The insurance company absolutely believed that Mark was involved in the deaths of his wife and mother-in-law. So they tried to negotiate. They offered to pay out the full $600,000 as a trust fund for Michael and Michelle. Mark fought back. He threatened to sue the insurance company. Eventually, they settled. $150,000 went to Mark's kids, and $300,000 went to Mark. A month after the murders, Leanne divorced her husband. According to Time magazine, investigator Danny Smith reached out to Leanne shortly after the double murders. He said that he tried to warn her, telling her that Mark had told him, in no uncertain terms, that he would always need a young, sexy wife. Smith said, When you cease to fulfill those needs, you know he's going to kill you. In 1994, Leanne Vandiver was in love with her boyfriend Mark. And with his wife out of the way, she wasted no time. She moved in with Mark and doted on him and his two kids. She baked brownies and coached Matthew's soccer team. But that same year, there was another disturbing development. Allegations of molestation. Michelle, who was two at the time, reportedly told a daycare worker that her daddy had played with her boo-boo and allegedly pointed to her vagina. Again, Mark denied any allegation of wrongdoing. And again no further action was taken. But the New York Times reported that a clinical psychologist evaluated Mark and found he was capable of homicidal thought and homicidal action. Mark and Leanne married in 1995, and Mark used the $294,000 insurance settlement from Deborah's death to fund his new career as a day trader. Mark and Leanne got custody of Mark's two children, but their marriage was not destined for happily ever after he continued to battle inner demons. He became a Jehovah's Witness, and a minister who counseled him at one point told Newsweek that Mark was tortured because he believed that he had inherited some kind of mental defect from his father. Still, he mostly kept his dark side and his paranoid delusions well hidden. Several neighbors remembered him as a religious, family-oriented, totally normal guy who was active in Boy Scouts. Behind the scenes, the marriage continued to deteriorate. Mark became more and more paranoid and controlling, and Leanne more and more frustrated by what she saw as his addiction to day trading. She was working hard, selling cleaning supplies to support the family, and he refused to get a regular job. In October 1998, Mark called Leanne at work, despondent. He told her he had nothing to live for and he wanted to kill himself. Leanne rushed home, only for Mark to tell her, mockingly, that he had made the whole thing up. However, he said he had already killed the cat. And if that wasn't horrifying enough, he then spent the next few days helping his daughter look for her missing pet. That was the final straw for Leanne, and the couple separated. But because she knew that Mark was having financial problems and struggling to pay his mortgage, she gave him one more chance. Around Christmas time, he told her that he was devastated after losing $105,000 in a three-day period. According to her family, Leanne was afraid of Mark, but she loved him and his kids, so she allowed them to move into her apartment in the Atlanta suburb of Stockbridge. Meanwhile, Mark's finances continued to move further into the red. The New York Times wrote that James Lee, the president of Momentum Securities Incorporated, stated in a letter to the SEC that Mark had lost roughly $105,000 in a two-week period beginning on June 9th. Investigators believe that Mark woke up early on the morning of Tuesday, July 27th, and beat Leanne to death. Then, they say he hit her in the closet to keep the children from seeing her. Then, on Wednesday night, he murdered his children. And the horrific details continued to unfold as forensic teams combed the house. After hitting the children with a hammer while they slept, Mark held them underwater until they were dead. Then, he tucked them in and placed their favorite toys next to them. He left lovingly handwritten notes on each family member's body. And during this time, Again, for the most part, Mark appeared completely normal to the outside world. According to The Guardian, neighbors in the couple's apartment complex remembered seeing them in the swimming pool, playing with the kids the weekend before. The newspaper also quoted a neighbor who asked not to be named. She said she saw Barton carrying Toys R Us bags just hours before he killed Leanne. She was later horrified to realize that the bag almost certainly contained the toys that Mark placed next to his children's bodies. Mark left another letter for law enforcement on his computer. It read, To whom it may concern, Leanne is in the master bedroom closet under a blanket. I killed her on Tuesday night. I killed Matthew and Michelle Wednesday night. There was little pain. All of them were dead in less than five minutes. I hit them with a hammer in their sleep and then put them face down in a bathtub to make sure they did not wake up in pain, to make sure they were dead. I am so sorry. I wish I didn't. Words cannot tell the agony. Why did I? I have been dying since October. I wake up at night so afraid, so terrified that I couldn't be that afraid while awake. It has taken its toll. I've come to hate this life and this system of things. I've come to have no hope. I killed the children to exchange them for five minutes of pain for a lifetime of pain. I forced myself to do it to keep them from suffering so much later. No mother, no father, no relatives. The fears of the father are transferred to the son. It was from my father to me, and from me to my son. He already had it, and now to be left alone. I had to take him with me. I killed Leanne because she was one of the main reasons for my demise, as I planned to kill the others. I really wish I hadn't killed her now. She really couldn't help it, and I love her so much anyway. I know that Jehovah will take care of all of them in the next life. I'm sure the details don't matter. There's no excuse, no good reason. I'm sure no one would understand. If they could, I wouldn't want them to. I just write these things to say why. Please know that I love Leanne, Matthew, and Michelle with all of my heart. If Jehovah is willing, I would like to see all of them again in the resurrection to have a second chance. I don't plan to live very much longer, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction. You should kill me if you can. Mark O. Barton. After the massacre in Buckhead, Mark Barton was on the run. Several witnesses said they saw him on the street around Piedmont, but in the chaos, they didn't realize that he was the actual gunman. He managed to walk around for a few minutes, pause in front of a building under construction, and then disappear into a patch of woods. For the next five hours, the entire city was paralyzed as law enforcement scoured the city for any sign of Mark or his minivan. Scenes of the carnage were splashed all over local news. Office workers evacuated the area. SWAT teams with police dogs came in and each building was cleared methodically, floor by floor. But there was no sign of Mark. Finally, police caught up with Mark at a gas station in Cobb County. They surrounded the minivan. Guns drawn, they ordered him to surrender. Instead, Mark took a gun in each hand, put both to his head, and fatally shot himself. By 8 p.m., police were given the all clear. the deadliest spree killing in Georgia's history was over. Investigators struggled to find a motive. Was it day trading? Did the Dow drop push mark over the edge? Did he have an underlying mental condition that finally took hold? Was he a spree killer, mass murderer, family annihilator, serial killer? Some combination of all the above? The truth is, though most workplace killings don't have multiple victims or even make the news, they're very common in America. In fact, according to a 2018 article in The Atlantic, the third leading cause of workplace death, right behind falls and car crashes, is homicide. It's hard to say if anyone could have seen Mark's murderous rampage coming. After all, narcissism and psychopathy, two of the traits cited by red-collar expert Frank Perry as being most correlated with white-collar violence, are also the traits that many CEOs need in order to get to the top. Another red-collar expert, Rich Brody, professor of accounting at the University of New Mexico's Anderson School of Management, spoke to Forbes contributor Walter Pavlo about red-collar psychopaths and their need for ultimate control. Brody, who regularly lectures on fraud and red-collar crime around the country, was discussing a case in Florida of a man facing an indictment for securities fraud. Instead of doing his time, he murdered his entire family, and then himself. Brody and Perry wrote a paper called Fraud Detection Suicide, the dark side of white collar crime Brody said quote in murder suicides like this one there are risk factors that include personality traits such as the need to control situations and or persons murder is the ultimate form of control over others and being able to control one's destiny albeit resulting in death appears preferable end quote we've also discussed the well-known fraud triangle and how it applies to red collar crime in the paper Perry and Brody rename the geometric shape the fraud-concealment-homicide triangle. Basically, they state that the same method of figuring out who's most likely to commit fraud can be used to explain the reasons why people commit murder. There are three sides to the fraud triangle—pressure, rationalization, and opportunity. In these cases, basically, as the pressure builds to unbearable levels, the barrier for opportunity and rationalization drops it gets easier and easier to justify horrific crimes and even murder. So seen through this framework, Mark's killing sprees were not crimes of passion. They weren't aberrations. They were sadly predictable responses to extreme pressure. The survivors and their families are still living with the horrific memories of that day that changed everything. Ten years after the massacre, journalist Bill Torpy followed up with some of the survivors for an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution— Kathy Van Camp, a victim who Mark shot in the face, was blinded. She also lost a lot of her senses of taste and smell. She's now living a quiet life in Waikiki Beach, Hawaii, with her husband. Brent sold his stake in Alltech and got out of day trading altogether. He moved back home to Wichita, Kansas and started working in his family's trucking business. Both Alltech and Momentum were sued by several of Mark's victims. They argued in civil court that Mark's mental instability should have been picked up by pre-employment screening. The lawsuits were dismissed, but day trading would never be the same. In 2000, the rules were changed again, this time to eliminate the advantages for day traders. Then the dot-com bubble burst. Many of the day traders got out of the business. The boiler room, fly-by-night feel was, for the most part, out, replaced with better trained professionals. All tech ceased to exist. And Brent told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he absolutely refutes the idea that he could have, or should have, been able to see what was coming when it came to Mark Barton. He said, If this was foreseeable, I wouldn't have been there, standing there, talking to Barton, when he shot me. In a lot of ways, Mark Barton remains a mystery, a black hole. To get some kind of insight, Newsweek published excerpts from Mark's America Online profile. In hindsight, they're pretty disturbing. Mark wrote that he enjoyed stock trading, and his personal quote was, a dollar earned is a dollar saved. By 1999, he had made some changes. According to Newsweek, he listed guns and day trading under his hobbies, and he changed his personal quote to the one that Clint Eastwood made famous as Dirty Harry, make my day. In a final twist, according to the Washington Post, workers were in the process of cleaning the bloody carpet when Momentum Securities got a call from Barton's bank, Mark Barton's $50,000 check had finally cleared. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>